0: Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun
1: as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands, the habitat, the hunting, and of course, your favorite bird dogs. Today,
2: the feature of this episode of On the Wing Podcast is a legend. That legend being Jim Woolley. If we dial the clock back to 1985, Jim Woolley left a safe and successful career with the Iowa DNR as the state's upland game biologist to take a risk. And that risk was he became the first biologist For the fledgling, Pheasants Forever only started three years prior in 1982. When Jim Woolley joined Pheasants Forever in 1985, he was the first biologist for Pheasants Forever. He spent a career that spanned three decades with Pheasants Forever and ultimately Quail Forever. And he played a critical role in being the person that helped us establish the philosophy for following science for all of our decision-making processes. Also in this episode, uh, which is being sponsored by Polaris, the number one trusted UTV by farmers, ranchers, hunters, and homeowners for more than a decade, we're going to talk with Jim about food plots. Not only is it the right time of the year to get those food plots in the ground for wildlife, pheasants, quail, deer, turkeys, you name it, but Jim was largely responsible for establishing the organization's food plot guidelines and creating the Signature Series Seed Program, which does so much for the organization and our habitat mission today. Joining me for this episode, back riding shotgun, our public relations manager, Jared Wicklin. Welcome back, Jared.
0: Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited about this. Um, I worked with Jim in Iowa uh, for about six years while I was down there. I was actually the regional rep that covered uh, their, their chapter, the Southern Prairie chapter of Pheasants Forever. And uh, I was there when, when Jim, Jim moved from one home to another and we said goodbye to him um, in that chapter. It was, a, it was a sad day for a lot of people, including myself. And I remember it like it was yesterday. So Wooly's always been kind of near, near and dear to me. And uh, he's just a wealth of information when it comes to upland birds, uh, food plots, those types of things. So I'm glad, glad to be here today and have Jim on the podcast.
2: And without further ado... Jim woolley welcome to on the wing podcast I have the advantage of being able to to look at you and <laughs> our our um, our listeners uh I, I mentioned you're a legend with pheasants forever and quail forever and I know that a tremendous number of our listeners will be very happy to hear that you look terrific uh it looks like you're you're happy healthy and I don't know, you, you look like you came off a turkey hunt here short while ago. Was it successful?
1: Well, it was successful for the turkeys. It wasn't necessarily <laughs> so much for me. <laughs>
2: well, that, that fits the three of us because uh, so far... Me, Jared, and you have been shut out on turkeys for the 2021 season.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, I go turkey hunting for a lot of different reasons, one of which is to collect a turkey every now and again. But beyond that, I just love being in the woods. You know, it's such a beautiful time of the year. All the warblers are coming through, um, all the songbirds. It's just a tremendous opportunity to be outdoors and sit in the grass and collect every now and again a turkey but every time I go out I get covered with ticks as well
2: so. <laughs> yep ticks ticks morel mushrooms and turkeys are sort of the spring trifecta they all
1: it? go together, they all uh, go together. Uh,
2: I'm assuming you were hunting in southern Iowa where you live these days
1: Um, I was. Um, We have a farm in in Wayne County, Iowa, and um, I also hunted on my neighbors right next door to the house here. So I've been in a couple of different spots, and I've had some great opportunities with turkeys. And uh, for one reason or another, mostly me, I'm pretty sure, they didn't work out. (laughs) But, um, you know, it was great being out there. I was out almost every day. So That's kind of what I live for. You know, I'm retired now, of course. I'm not sure everybody (laughs) knows that, but I've been been gone from Pheasants Forever um, for about five years now, and I'm, I'm trying to use that time to my best advantage, and that means getting outside.
2: Yeah. Good for you. Um, You you did, as I mentioned in the open, you had a a long and glorious uh, career with pheasants forever and quail forever. And and you are retired now. So you, you have an opportunity to enjoy uh, the outdoors, but we're going to suck you back in to the organization for, for (laughs) one hour of reminiscing and some, some coaching because it's hard to find a better uh, coach for, for folks that want to put in some habitat that, than you. So I want to start, well, I want to start at the beginning. Tell us about kind of your early career and walk us up to, to 1985. Like what, what you did um, leading into the job you took with Pheasants Forever, what you know? What was the beginning of your career as a biologist?
1: Yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe first, Bob, we should dispense with that. Business about being a legend because that's mostly in my own mind. But <laughs> um, but, but uh, yeah, I I grew up as a kid in uh, northern Michigan, northern Lower Peninsula. Um, kind of thought for a while I wanted to be a conservation officer, and that turned into college, which turned into a. Um, an interest in biology and I went on for a, a degree at, at Central Michigan University and the University of, of uh, Maine to graduate work out there and then ended up in Iowa. Um, I was hired by the uh, Iowa Conservation Commission it was back then and uh, became the state quail biologist for a couple of years before my my sidekick moved on and then I became the state pheasant biologist. So Mm. eight years with the um, Iowa Conservation Commission, which turned into the Iowa Department of Natural Resources shortly after I left. Um, But at the very tail end of that, at a summer research meeting that we were at in Clear Lake, Iowa, I uh, was told by my boss that I needed to go over to Charles City and see what this Pheasants Forever thing was about, you know, was is this just another one of those stocking groups, you know, mm. which is what we all kind of had in mind at that point. And I attended that meeting um in the summer of 84. And at that meeting I met Jeff Finden, uh the first CEO of the organization. And to my surprise and delight uh, it ended up not being a discussion about stocking except when stocking was brought up um, Jeff was quick to say that that was not the way to approach the problems that we were having with pheasants at that point in time kind of across the pheasant range the problem was habitat and that was that was kind of like rockets going off for me that I knew that this was a different kind of organization And uh, at that point um, Jeff and I stayed in contact. Um, You know I invited them to our uh, winter of 1985 um, uh, staff meeting for the Wildlife Division of uh, DNR or or Conservation Commission at that point. Um, Jeff and some of the folks involved in PF came, put on a great presentation and shortly after that, they were looking for a biologist, you know, their first biologist. And, um, you know, I began thinking about that and ultimately ultimately, uh, took the job. You know, it was a difficult decision. I was living the dream. Um, my first pheasant uh, fell in a cornfield, you know, when I was 12 years old in Michigan. Hmm. and I'd always been enamored of pheasants, you know. And being the pheasant biologist for Iowa, uh was kind of a dream job but you Mm. could see with what was going on with uh pf chapters that there was just tremendous potential tremendous potential um for this organization people were excited about it and um ultimately my wife and i kicked it around and i made the decision to go and and uh basically never looked back it was uh it was the right decision Hmm. and um it certainly was the right organization
2: you know we I talked with um Dave Nonson on this podcast a number of times and I know that his dad was the pheasant biologist for for Iowa DNR did you cross paths with with Dave's dad back in the day
1: no, I, I did not. You know, uh, Dick Nomsen was kind of a, he, he's a real legend uh, in Iowa. You know, he's hes one of the authors of the Ringneck Pheasant in Iowa, a great book that the DNR put out down here. And, um, you know, Dick and I never really crossed paths. He was uh, retired by the time that I came to the state in 77. Um, but everybody talked about Dick. Um, hmm. I, got, I got to listen in on the legend, so.
2: Well, So 1985, you're having this conversation with your wife about losing or not losing, leaving a job with the state, right? Which, which it should be my, my perception really safe, right? A steady salary benefits, a uh, government position. How'd that conversation go? And, and what, um, what was your level of anxiety leaving the government and joining a a fledgling nonprofit?
1: Well, a fair amount of anxiety um, because this was uh, a small organization. But on the other hand, um, if it, if it reached the the potential that I thought that it had, Hmm. um, I'd be in on the ground floor. And my wife and I have, uh, have always supported each other. We went to grade school and high school together. Hmm. Um, we went to college together. Um, you know, she, you know, started out as a librarian and moved into uh, education. And, um, you know, she said to me, as I recall, I've got a great job here in Sheraton where we lived at the time. Um, you know, I think this will go good for you. Um, you look like somebody who needs to make a change. You know, Mm. I was really enjoying what I was doing with the Iowa DNR. I was putting pheasants, uh, excuse me, radios on pheasants and tracking their movements, tracking their mortality, did the same thing for quail. Um, I was a research biologist, but on the other hand, you know, much of this had already been done before. Mm. And, in front of me on the plate was something that had not been done before, I guess, which was uh, creating a, a, an organization for folks that were interested in upland pursuits, you know, pheasants in particular at that point in time, but it morphed into larger things. And um, I had seen the excitement over Pheasants Forever. I went, I went up to the very first banquet uh, in In Iowa, in the uh, winter of spring, rather of nineteen eighty five um, and that was at Charles City. Um, that chapter did form there. It was four counties, and they had a banquet and I flew up there with the director of the DNR, Larry Wilson, and a, uh, uh, a commissioner, Tom Spawn. Uh, and the three of us in a little plane piloted by a guy, all four of us, you know, were pretty good sized guys, you know. And I thought for a minute that maybe, you know, as that plane cleared almost all of the runway before it took off, that that <laughs> might be the end of my career. Like <laughs> but but we got up there and and uh, and we and we went to the banquet hall not knowing what to expect it was 450 of the most excited people i'd ever seen in my life Mm -hmm. and that was that was the excitement about the organization other organizations had been very successful du is probably the primary example Mm -hmm. and um here was something that was specifically for the folks who had an interest in pheasants and pheasant hunting and pheasant habitat um, and it just seemed as though, you know, that was the path I needed to take.
0: Hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't want to pre predate you here, Jim, but I've seen the black and white photo at the prom center, our first banquet. I, I can't say I've seen a black and white photo anywhere of that banquet up in, up in Charles city or wherever it is. Is it, is it does that exist anywhere?
1: I've never oh, seen it pro- it. You know, it probably does, Jared, but I don't know where it would be. Um. You know, and at that point in time, I probably looked better in black and white than I do in color. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, it was just a lot of darn people. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. I need to look that up and get you guys that information because I'm sure that picture is out there.
2: Huh. So 1985, you're hired okay. as the very first biologist I have to believe at that time, you were probably, what, like the fifth total employee, something in that neighborhood?
1: I was the third. The Um, third? The the third. Um, There was Jeff Finden, and there was Betsy Whitten. Betsy was um, Betsy Anderson. Um, She ran the office, you know, which was in Jeff Finden's basement. Hmm. And um, I basically had the nation... Uh, to cover, with the exception of Minnesota and the Dakotas, Jeff handled that. <laughs> uh, but I flew, I flew um, countrywide from Pennsylvania to Washington State, starting chapters, and and this interest um, in pheasants and and upland pursuits uh, was everywhere. Um, we had, after a short period of time of getting getting my feet on the ground, we had literally more business than we could handle people who wanted to start chapters who wanted to do the right thing for um for for upland wildlife out there and pheasants in particular and that was to solve the problems that they had with habitat Mm. Um, and this this was an organization that had the prescription to do that because all of the money stayed locally uh, with the exception of the membership fees and Uh, people really responded that that first year the first 12 months i think i spent a month and a half before i started my first chapter and after that it was like firecrackers I, Mm. i started as i recall 41 chapters in that first year all the way from pennsylvania to idaho
2: how important in those early years, when you're talking with the folks about starting chapters, how important was the fact that you were a biologist and had that background with the Iowa DNR to your ability to to answer questions and and talk about where the organization was heading?
1: Um, I think it was important. Um, You know, I think it was important in addressing questions with, enthusiasts, I guess, that, that started chapters and wanted to know how to proceed as far as um, habitat development, that sort of thing. I think it was also important uh, in liaising with uh, state agencies mm. out there. And that's, that's really the magic, I think, of, of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, is, uh, is that liaison between chapters Mm-hmm. And agencies, you know, there's been so much cooperation, so much partnership uh, over the years. Um, it's hard to describe, you know, and it ranges all the way from private lands habitat programs, all the way up through land acquisitions. You know that Pheasants Forever has worked on with agencies uh, over the years, and and there's a lot of those. As I think about
2: the <clears throat> partnerships with state agencies. My mind immediately goes to the Iowa Conservation Buffers Partnership and how that, in in many ways, was the predecessor to today's Farm Bill Biologist Program. Tell, tell our listeners about the Iowa Conservation Buffers Partnership and how where, how that came to be.
1: The uh, the Buffers Partnership um, came out of a discussion between. Myself and Matt O'Connor, who's another uh, employee of Pheasants Forever, was the regional representative for the northern part of the state um, at the time that this, that this occurred. And Al Ferris, who was the chief of fish and wildlife for the Iowa DNR. And um, Al had seen what one of our chapters, the Carroll County chapter, um, had done to promote buffer establishment, um, continu- a continuous CRP practice that put habitat essentially next to areas for water quality mm-hmm. um and 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 al said is there any chance that that you guys would be interested if we could get you uh a grant to uh expand this to other chapters and and both of us jumped up and said sure we would um and and that's really how it started we expanded from um money that was essentially granted from the dnr uh to working with soil and water conservation districts that put money into the program the state soil conservation division that put money into the program and um went from went from there to uh nrcs at the at the uh, state level that put money in as well um and we had some other partners as well but The whole idea was put people in local soil and water conservation district offices in order to sell habitat, sell the program, um, expand the establishment of continuous CRP acres on the landscape because it was having a hard time. Hmm. And over, I guess over three years time, I'm probably going to get the, the, the dates wrong, but over three years time, through that partnership, those people in districts were able to sign up about 250,000 acres of um, habitat out there, essentially, through these buffer practices. So, you know, that was putting back cover that had been gone from the landscape there for a long time. And um, that really expanded the uh, acceptance of CRP, uh, continuous practices like buffers um, and filter strips here in the state.
2: Mm-hmm. Hey, Iowa became uh, the the buffer capital of the country pretty quickly as a result of this, that program. Did
1: yep, yep. Um, it, all it took was salesmen, you know, which is, which is true of everything. You know, if, if you want something to succeed, somebody has to believe in it and Mm. they have to go out and sell it. And so, you know, having that person in the district, when farmers came in to ask questions, working with them on what it would mean to their land to do that, both economically and habitat wise was really kind of a key. And, um, that's that's one of the things I think that did drive the um, uh, habitat specialists and Farm Bill biologists uh, programs um, that have now expanded across the country.
2: When when you think back to you know thirty one years with pheasants forever and quail forever, there yeah I mean you saw you saw an idea of for an organization turn into so many tangible results and and tangible output from like we touch on the far the the buffers program but i mean you saw you saw the the farm bill crp from creation in 1985 the same year that you joined to you know explode on the landscape you you know you saw the chapter growth you were part of the creation um, of quail forever you saw the beginnings of National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. I mean, for three decades, you you were part of the tremendous growth across this country, and not only the organization but the uplands. When you think about, you know, what were some of the high points um, for you over those three three years or three decades? what are the things that come to your mind that you're most proud of being a part of Jim?
1: Um, Boy, Uh, there are, there are lots of them Um, and I'm not sure that I can point one out that's better than another, but, you know, as I think about it through the years, um, you know, and I was, I was several different things at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, but, you know, starting out as a, uh, regional biologist, um, national biologist to begin with, but, um, you know, as, as someone who had something to sell and deliver, which was habitat, this is what we, this is what we're going to do. Maybe, maybe the thing that, that I'm most impressed with, certainly the thing I'm most impressed with is, um, how many people at the chapter level bought into that as um, as uh, volunteers, mm-hmm. and the energy that they put into not only um, fundraising to get the money to do the things that needed to be done uh, but also in applying that to the ground. Um, chapters that had dedicated habitat crews, um, chapters, many chapters that had, Cost share programs that they worked with NRCS and the state uh, agencies on in order to deliver dollars to landowners to do things that needed to be done on the landscape out there through existing practices. Um, You know, certainly that's got to be towards the top. Um, You know, building support between. Uh, agencies and watching that development you know agency the chapter support and then turn it right around and you know chapters working with agencies on any number of programs you know that today are are habitat based they're based in uh, recruitment of folks to the um, to the hunting community out there Um, it's it's grown tremendously over that period of time but I guess if I had to If I had to point to one thing um, that I really take the most pleasure out of, it would be what this organization, what those chapters and those volunteers have done for land acquisition. Mm. Um, It's it's amazing. Um, You know, there are so many public wildlife areas in Minnesota, Iowa, other states um, that, uh, you know, this organization has been part of through a lot of different programs. Um, you know, I I, I tried uh, here a couple of years ago to come up with a list of all of the projects that we had done down here, and I haven't added to it since then. Because one of my goals was in retirement, I want to go hunt every damn one of those areas. <laughs>
2: That's
1: a good goal. That's a great goal. <laughs> and I'm making progress. <laughs> but, but at any point, at, 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 at any rate, um, what I what I came up with was a list of 500. This is just in Iowa. 508 uh. different projects may have gone you know it may have been several projects per area over a period of years but 508 uh different uh projects that chapters dedicated money to Mm -hmm. um acres Mm -hmm. uh of of public acquisitions with the partnership of our chapters and agencies both both at the state level dnr and county conservation boards here um and And if you think about last year, when we got a huge increase in interest in hunting, um, buying licenses, getting out into the outdoors, um, there was a tremendous use of those public acres out there. They were being used before, but last year, I'll tell you what, it took off. And um, that's something that uh, I think is so important to uh, obviously private land you need to do whatever you can um, on private lands and and uh, you know know that it's a continuing project um, with with respect to public lands I can't think of anywhere except perhaps in the west you know where there are vast acreages of public lands where we have enough enough of them um, and so it's something that uh, chapters have really, grabbed hold of. Um, there's a lot of local pride, you know, when an area is put into permanent wildlife habitat and it will be there forever. Mm -hmm. Um, so that ranks up there probably close to the top.
2: You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I, i recently read a number of the news stories that were done about you when you did retire, um, five years ago. And, you know, Invariably, just like you did here, you always circle back to how much you enjoyed working with the volunteers, whether that was for land acquisition, putting on a banquet, doing private land projects. Um, the, the volunteer spirit in co- connection with the, um, the unique model of the organization those two things were magic for you and are magic for you, weren't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, they they very much were magic. Um, you know, the, the fact that early on, um, the board of directors of this organization um, and uh, Jeff Finden um, recognized that it was critical to address the problems with real solutions, which hmm. was habitat, not stocking. Um, you know, and and we're able to sell that to to all of those chapter people out there, all of those folks that you know used used to go to other banquets, um, but really didn't have uh, an and interest necessarily um, in in what was happening. But here they have something in front of them, and they can they can uh, put their their energy and their dollars towards something that that they will see results from on the local level that's mm-hmm. the magic of pheasants forever and quail forever um it's that it's that spirit locally um of those average guys that started a chapter you know you can say whatever you want to about me <laughs> and people have but <laughs> but and it, I think that um, this organization's foundation is is exactly that. It mm. is the spirit of the chapter people that are willing to go out there and work for the resource. Mm.
2: To, so, just to reiterate for listeners who you know uh, Jim mentioned it a, a little bit ago, but just to reiterate, uh, our local model at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever allows. Chapters to retain, so if they, if they raise $20,000 at a local banquet, they retain all those dollars that control those dollars to do habitat projects in their own community. They could choose to, to send it to uh, headquarters to do legislative work in Washington, D.C. Uh, they can do you know state programs. The point is they have 100% control to decide how to put those dollars to work at a local level. And that's unique to our organization compared to any other national organization across the country. So it really is a choose your own adventure, whether it's land acquisition, private lands, youth engagement, um, government advocacy, um, our chapters get to decide how to put those fundraising dollars to work. Uh, go ahead, Jim.
1: Absolutely. That's, it's so important. Um, I was just going to say, you know, I've always been involved with a local PF chapter myself, um, and swore I'd never be an officer again, but guess who's the treasurer here in this chapter (laughs) where I'm at? Um, at any rate, you know, this chapter has, uh, which is the Warren County chapter in Indianola, has done multiple land acquisitions with agencies. Um, it works every year to have a uh, dedicated youth shooting activity. Um, we uh, work with private landowners, of course, on food plot establishment and on uh, nesting cover establishment. Uh, And we support the national office from the standpoint of legislative action, which is so important for um, CRP and for other issues as well. So, you know, that's that's the thing that's nice. The dollars are there. The chapter decides. And, um, you know, if there's a program that's that's important enough um, to have somebody like Jared, as an example, come out and try and try and sell that program to us. If Jared's able to get that done, and he always was able to get that done, um, that chapter is going to support. So. Yes.
2: Um, so, as I mentioned in the outset, uh, Polaris, our official UTV partner, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, is the the partnering sponsor for this particular episode of On the Wing podcast, and that and that's a good fit because Jim one of one of the major achievements in, in your career was getting Pheasants Forever into the seed business, starting with, um, our signature series and, in, in food plots. Um, how did that evolve? Uh, it, I know there were others involved, involved with it, but yeah. how did the seed business, um, get going for Pheasants Forever?
1: Um, I can't remember the date, Bob, uh, but, um, Iowa and Nebraska, um, the regional staff, um, which would have included me and and Matt O'Connor here in Iowa and Pete Berthelsen in Nebraska, kind of got going on creating mixes, uh, food plot mixes, that um, our chapters could use to put on private lands with their cooperators. And so, um, you know, from that beginning, which was... um, pretty much aimed only at supplying to chapters um we came up with various mixes uh that that would work there was a nebraska mix i can't tell you what all is in that now but i do know that that is you know the current winter shield mix Mm. in the lineup of national mixes um you know matt o'connor came up with rooster booster which is another mix that was uh in the national mixes and um, i came up with the winter survival mix and we kind of began with chapters here in our respective states and then made that available to chapters in other states and shortly after that it became apparent that there was enough interest that perhaps this is something that we should make available to our members and other people who were interested uh as well so that's kind of the, uh, the the short and skinny i guess of how it started um and then i I was able to um, take the program uh, out to the public, I guess, and uh, expand the number of mixes. Initially, we were, we were pretty much focused on just pheasants uh, and, and quail um, and winter food plots. But uh, it became pretty obvious that the guys that own land out there had a bigger interest than, than just winter food plots. They wanted to do things for their deer as well in other seasons of the year. And so we expanded into some of the deer mixes, um, the browse mixes that we've got, and um, it became a relatively um, a relatively large program.
2: It, you have know, pollinator mixes, what, turkey mixes, dove mixes, and, and as you mentioned, you know it started with a focus on hunting season and winter getting birds through the winter but now you know there's all
1: sorts of mixes
2: and i relate back to pollinators again for for spring bugging
1: too right right absolutely you know some of the deer mixes that we put in there de- deer candy was one of the uh one of the mixes that was mostly a clover mix with some alfalfa in it um that that plot that was established for deer was also a great bugging area for uh those little pheasants to get into you know lots of good bugs in that soft vegetation and uh you know that uh, that is something that kind of benefited both ways just like the the uh, grain food plots benefited deer uh through the winter uh and turkeys that sort of thing so um that's kind of how it started and um aaron keel who runs the program now who may have been on the, the podcast i'm not sure in the yep. past um has really done a great job in adding mixes and providing information to people um you know there's a website um you know on the pf website there's a web page many web pages that um Describe both the mixes and how you go about establishing, you know, and all the things that you need to think about.
2: So you can you can find that, folks, at uh, pfhabitatstore.com. Uh, you can get there as well from pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org and find it on the conservation tab. And you'll see native seed and signature series seed in the dropdown. Uh, All right. So if folks got their Polaris out and they've uh, uh, prepped a site, well, let's start with that. They got their Polaris out. How should they prep their back 40 for a food plot? What are the first couple of things a landowner needs to do?
1: Well, one of the first things is they need to decide just exactly what it is um, that they're trying to accomplish. And if it's winter habitat, you're looking at grain food plots, Um, you know, and um, you need to be mindful that um, they can be both food and cover. Um, Hopefully you're establishing something large enough so that it provides some character, Uh, To uh, the cover you're trying to put it next to that the birds will be roosting in um, Or will be loafing in Uh, It will it will uh, undoubtedly be something that uh, Everybody in in your wildlife Circle is going to come to dinner at you know, so it's got to be it's got to be if you if you put in a food plot for pheasants and quail There's no way just because it says for pheasants and quail (laughs) only on your sign that the deer are going to stay out. And the same thing, of course, um, you know, with respect to turkeys. So you need to think about size. Um, You need to think about where it goes, Mm -hmm. the location of that food plot. In general, you need to place your food plots very close to uh, winter cover where your birds will be locating or excuse me, will be um, uh, roosting. Uh, because the whole uh, point of putting in a food plot is not just to bring the birds through in very good condition, and that's certainly very important, but um, you want them coming through the winter in peak condition when they hit breeding season. But the other part of it is um, you want to restrict the movements of, of those birds during the winter so that they don't have to travel as far for food. You know they can come, and this is this is uh, this is Pete Berthelsen's um, quote. You know, you put the kitchen next to the bedroom. You know that that makes a lot of sense. You don't have to walk very far. Mm-hmm. The kitchen, yeah. That's how it um, is at
0: my house, Jim.
1: Yeah, we're set up that way too. <laughs> but 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 the whole idea is provide additional protection um provide uh close by food resources uh and to minimize the the impact of, of mortality on your wintering population of birds.
2: Do you have to do anything from a like a soil test to make sure that the seed is gonna germinate when you identify say you identified the location that's next to a cattail slough so you got that thermal cover. Um, but what happens uh, if you can't get seed to grow there? How how do you how do you make sure that seed's going to grow there?
1: Well, um, you know your conditions have to be right. It can't be too wet, um, and obviously, um, uh, you know you want to make sure that if you're going to invest all this time and money, <clears throat> and food plots food plots do cost a significant amount of money to put mm-hmm. in. Seeds, probably the least expensive part. Um, but if you're talking about fertilizer and time and equipment and everything else, it's it's an expensive affair, you know? So you wanna make sure that uh, you do the right thing. And one of the easiest things to do uh, for very little money is to do a simple soil test. Um, you go out and you take samples in the area that, that your food plot is going to be. You mix them up and you send them to a, sea, a soil lab, and they tell you what's in your soil how much nitrogen, how much potassium, um, how much phosphorus, and uh, trace elements as well. Um, and they tell you what the pH of that soil is. If you have a very acidic soil, you have to amend that ahead of time with something like lime, as an example, um, so that you can get the pH up to the Optimal growing conditions, uh, soil growing conditions for your seed, which is going to be a pH of six to six and a half. You know, if you're above or below that, what that simply means is, you know, that's not optimal for that seedling, you know, to take nutrients from the soil. You have to bring that pH to optimal conditions in order to get the most bang for your fertilizer buck um if your ph is is a point lower than it needs to be and it's not six five it's, it's five five you're losing 33 percent of your fertilizer mm. So so it's an economic decision and i think a soil test Oh, they used to be 10 bucks they're probably 20 bucks now it's very inexpensive and if you don't want to go to that um to that degree, you can uh, go to a garden center and get your own soil test there uh, and probably get a a reasonable indication of what you've got going on.
2: Jared, you just went through that process, didn't you?
0: I did. I did. I actually used uh, Hugo Feed Mill, which is down the road from me, and they actually send it in to the University of Minnesota um, to to get it diagnosed to see just what the prescription is going to be. And they basically, you know, that's, that would be, I guess, on the, the high end of the spectrum. I mean, they're asking you what you planted the last three years, what you're going to plant this year and what you think you're going to plant moving forward. And then based, based on, uh, those specific crops, whether you're doing grain or brassicas, whatever it might be, um, the, the feed mill comes back with a prescription for you for what that soil specifically needs to grow the best food plot or crop possible. Um, but, you know, just like Jim said, I, I started out, um, I started out going to, uh, Menards or Home Depot and buying the, buying the home test kit and just doing it, doing it myself at home. It's not, it's not exact science, but it gets you, it gets you close to kind of show you what, what you're lacking for, um, you know, a specific nutrient. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's the way a lot of people get started, but yeah, it was, uh, $17 for a full, um uh, analyze, analyzation of the soil and, um, to get a prescription back for what I needed. What, what did you need to do on your ground? Um, I was incredibly, incredibly short on nitrogen, number one. And if you're growing, if you're growing corn, like specifically, um, which, which I typically like to do corn and I, I rotated every couple of years, um, nitrogen is always going to be a limiting factor. Um, potassium, uh, was pretty low as well. Um, so those, those two things specifically, it helps a little bit. I actually, I I do a lot of the work myself. I go a cheap route. I've got a dairy farmers next door. I've got some Highlander, a group of Highlander cows down the way, and, uh, they've got more manure than they could possibly handle. Um, so they're, (laughs) my, my neighbors are very kind. I just redid a cow fence for my neighbor and he gave me, uh. He gave me a, a good amount of manure, I took it out there and spread it myself, and um, I have a have another neighbor come over and till it into the soil for me, um, which uh, which helps tremendously.
2: Yeah. Jim's nodding his head, it doesn't, um, I'm assuming Jared's experience is pretty pretty typical, right?
1: Well, you know, not everybody, um, you know, has the resources next door <laughs> that Jared's got. Well, that's true. <laughs> And and very few have actually gone out and shoveled their own manure, but um, you know, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very much uh, the same. You know, people people learn either either by um, you know reading ahead of time or by trial and error that they need to get some indication of of just exactly what it is that they've got going on in the soil out there because that's the basis of your food plot, you know. So.
2: I know that there's a percentage of our audience that for sure has, you know, an E-Series John Deere tractor at their, at their uh, disposal, right, to, to install uh, a food plot. But there's probably a larger percentage that have a Polaris Ranger in their garage. Uh, that's, a, that's a tool for them to fire up and help them get a food plot installed. What, how can they approach a food plot with an ATV? Uh, and how can that help them from a site prep? And then also what might they be able to add or rent to help get seed in the ground once, uh, once they get that ATV going?
1: Um, well, to begin with, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's Rangers, um, it's other UTVs, it's, um you know, in the case of, of Polaris, it's their Sportsman mm-hmm. uh, ATV, um, all of which you can use to put food plots in. The The bigger the bigger issue sometimes, you know, if you're doing really large, large food plots, you know, 10 acres, 20 acres, that sort of thing, um, is that, um, you know, size does make a difference. And you may have to rely on your neighbors to, to uh, get a regular planter and a tractor, that sort of thing. But for the smaller food plots um there's there's certainly nothing today that would keep people from using their their recreational utv or atv uh for doing that unless they didn't have the equipment and and it can be rented some places uh, but it can also be purchased relatively inexpensively for instance um you can put a you can put a uh pretty heavy disc on the back of uh, a UTV and um you know get a good seed bed uh disked up with that with that heavy disc. Um you know a good heavy disc probably in the range of a thousand dollars or so. <laughs> um and um you know planting that is relatively uh easy. Uh, we have a number of mixes available through PF uh, PFC program, the Signature Series mixes, like Covey Rise and Blizzard Buster um, that are grain sorghum and forage sorghum mixes. And one of the easiest ways to put those in is to uh, do some tillage work uh, ahead of time with a uh, disc and then Harrow that down uh, a bit, break it up maybe with a cultivator, all of which can be uh, a drug on the back of your uh, UTV or ATV, your Polaris Ranger or your sportsman. And um, you can uh, you can then broadcast your food plot seed. Um, you know, hopefully you will have uh, fertilized ahead of uh, of that uh, of that point. And you can. Um, rake that in harrow it in and then follow up afterwards um right afterwards with uh some kind of of uh pre-emergent spray in order to keep the weeds down in your food plot so you know if you look in in uh, any major outdoor uh businesses catalogs bass pro cabela's um, if you look at Sportsman's Guide, um, if you look on the internet, any place, there are a tremendous number of small implements that you can use uh, with your Polaris Ranger, as an example.
0: I, I would uh, I would follow up with that too. Is is just somebody who's been doing it for a few few years now. Um, got got the got the ATV, got the Polaris Sportsman. Um, I've got a drag harrow behind it. I've only got a fi- uh, 500 series, so it's not it's not the biggest ATV out there. So I, I tend to be pretty careful what I'm what I'm pulling behind it. Make sure we're not not burning out the ATV. Um, but like Jim said, I think when you upgrade to a UTV and you go up to that, um, you know, nine nine hundred class or more, uh, especially you've got a lot of power there <laughs> to. Uh, to pull some implements behind it, but I've got a drag harrow, um, I've got a spreader uh, for spreading seed, and that's how I started out. And um, you know, for this year particularly, uh, I have Tony, the the food plot guy, the tiller guy, comes over, and uh, I pay I pay two hundred dollars a year for him to till my plots twice. Um, and he's also got a a planter now, so I've sort of switched from spreading uh, to having him just plant it for me. He's got a two two row planter that works great for for planting a half acre at my house. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways you can do it with uh, um, some smaller implements, especially if you're a smaller landowner like myself. But like Jim said, um, if you're doing something bigger, uh, having a tractor or knowing somebody with a tractor, um, you can yeah. you can get a, get a lot of things done in a short amount of time when you have the right equipment.
2: You mentioned size matters when you're talking about food plot. Is there such a thing is too small. And is there such a thing as a, a targeted size for a food plot that you would recommend? Uh, Is it a percentage or how would you guide a landowner to, to get the right size food plot? I
1: guess, I guess I would say that at least from the standpoint of, of grain food plots, things like rooster booster or blizzard buster, I'd be looking to put in something along the line of three to five acres if I could surrounding or next to existing winter cover Hmm. to, to be close to that winter cover, to, uh, provide additional character, um, to sift out the snow in the, uh, you know, in the uh, food plot before it gets into the primary winter cover, and to keep those birds from having to travel. So, you know, three to five acres uh, would be what I'd like to see going in. That's not always possible, um, and you you may want to you may want to go smaller than that, particularly with things like. Um, Deer candy and some of the other browse mixes uh, and put in a number of different plots. But back to grain food plots, you know, the the enemy of grain food plots for your birds is deer and they will go through a lot of grain, particularly Hmm. in a tough winter. Um, So you really need to bear that in mind and you need to have a good sized food plot um, if you can.
2: What about timing as we, uh, as we record late spring heading into early summer? Um, obviously the geography of where you were talking about sure. plays into things, but let's, let's say where you are, you know, you're in Southern Iowa, uh, with, a with a pheasant and quail hunting season that kicks off, um, the end of October normally. Right.
1: What's, um,
2: When would you recommend somebody get their food plot established?
1: Well, it depends on what they're putting in, of course, but now is the time. Um, You know, uh, corn and beans across the state have uh, gone in during this dry spell we've had uh, like crazy. I think we're probably close to 100% planted. You know, the farmers have been out there. They're doing it. You can can also look at that um, from a wildlife standpoint. Uh, with your food plots and and just kind of say well those guys are doing it I ought to be doing the same thing Um, one one thing that you need to bear in mind is corn and beans are different than uh, sorghum you know and sorghum um, is is a small seed Uh, it also is a seed that requires more in the way of uh, ground temperature than corn and beans do so you don't want to put your sorghum in until uh it's 65 degrees maybe 68 degrees soil temperature not air temperature Mm -hmm. and we've just gone through a tremendous cold period here in iowa when when that happens to sorghum it sits in the ground and it rots and and what you need to do is get sorghum in the ground when the ground is warm get that seedling up through the soil um, and then it'll do just fine. Okay. Yeah.
2: All right. Any, any closing thoughts on seed and food plots? Jared.
0: Well, one thing I just want to mention really quick for everybody is we, we get a lot of questions, especially I received two over the weekend. Like, Hey, I hear you guys have a food plot seed program, where, where can I, I'm looking for corn, where can I get corn at? And my answer to that would be, is a lot of these things start in the previous year. So, um, we've got our signature series program, which has everything from sunflowers to clover, uh, to duck mixes, to buck mixes, um, to a lot of upland birds. And then there's regional mixes based on, um, you know, drier areas out West, uh, to, to to areas out east. So there's a lot of different things you can order there, pretty much throughout throughout the year for our signature series program. Uh, but we've also got our food plot, kind of a discard seed program that we do through a lot of our corporate agricultural partners. Um, and those things those things are ordered basically end of September, early October. So. Um, for any landowners that are interested in, um, we we love to help landowners out. It's all ran through our chapters. Uh, we've also got agency partners now that order food plot seed as well. Um, but for for seed corn, soybeans, uh, or sorghum mixes, um, some of the, most of those being Roundup Ready. Um, in order, if you want to order those, I would suggest people get a hold of chapters um, and at, at the latest, early September probably before that, because those orders take a long time to come through. um, And based on, based on the market and everything that's going on, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes we don't get full orders and that's just how, that's just the way things work. Um, But I would highly suggest if people are looking, especially for uh, seed corn beans uh, or sorghum, sorghum mixes through our partners for discard seed, that's about, you know, a year old, but still great germination rates. It works extremely well. Um, get a hold of Pheasants Forever chapters early in the year. Um, if they don't have a food plot seed program, uh, you can contact national headquarters. Uh, you can ask 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 for Jared. Um, you can um, just ask, you know, I have questions about food plot seed program. They'll put you in touch with the right people to figure out uh, who the nearest chapter might be that can get uh, get an order on the books for you.
2: Jim, you had an additional thought.
1: Um. Actually, I didn't, Bob.
2: Oh, I thought you were raising your finger.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> I think Jared covered it very adequately. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it does take some planning in advance. And, um, you know, you need to plan not only for what you need, but then you need to take a look at <clears throat> what you're going to need to do to make that succeed. Mm. Um, and for the discard products that that um, Jared talked about, round of pretty soybeans and corn um that's that's relatively easy you know um for other pro other products like sorghum sorghum mixes um and sorghum that comes uh in that discard program uh that that's not a roundup ready type product you know it needs to be it needs to be treated differently, um, you know, in order for it to uh, succeed from a, from a weed standpoint, at least, you know. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, different herbicides, dual two magnum uh, and others that are that are, uh, pre-emergent herbicides are used for sorghum. So, and that's kind of critical in, in all of this. If you don't address the weed problem, your your chances of success are much, much less. Hmm.
2: So we, we've we've covered. I'll just to scratch the surface of, of a thirty one year career. Uh, you know, we spent a fair amount of time on, on, on food plots and in you know seed mixes. But um, Jim, if you think if you think of your three decades of work with the organization, and then you take that crystal ball and you project into the future what uh what would you forecast for the the years ahead for the uplands that that our volunteers our members and then all the employees that have followed since employee number 3 um what what do you recommend that folks keep their eyes on that's going to make a big difference for the future
1: well <clears throat> if if my if my uh projections were uh, accurate you know I probably wouldn't have retired Bob but uh, but but I think you know I would say I would say going forward PF and QF simply need to do what they've done so well from the beginning and that is to keep the eyes on the mission, which is, which is habitat. It's what impacts upland wildlife, no matter whether you're talking about pheasants, quail, or lesser prairie chickens out there. Um, You know, this organization has has morphed um, tremendously over that 30-year period of time. We were laser focused on pheasants and, um, you know, later on, um, 20 years after that, we, we took on not only quail, but we also took on prairie grouse. Um, and, and this organization, with its focus on habitat, um, has the opportunity to impact all of the upland uh, game bird resources and the other resources, um, the songbird resources, um, the, uh, the other wildlife out there uh, into the future, if we stay focused on habitat, and based on based on thirty years worth of watching this unfold, I would say there's little doubt that that's going to happen. You know, so I would say the organization has a bright future.
2: Okay.
1: Jared, closing thoughts. I uh, just I just appreciated
0: seeing Wooly again. He's uh, <laughs> he was a he was a mentor to me in Iowa and has been in my almost eleven year career here at at uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. He's been around the block a number of times. Uh, he's done a lot of great things in his career for wildlife, from the you know from the food plot seed stand uh, standpoint. Um, I I used to go to him with with all my questions. He'd get a call from me a couple times every spring. So um, just a lot of lot of great things, and just happy to to have him on the podcast. And yes, I would say you know now is the time to begin to start your planning for, for next year. Um, there's still a little bit of time to get uh seed in the ground right now. Um, but if you're really, really looking to uh um you know make a make a food plot and uh tear into the ground a little bit and, and get things planned out the right way, start planning for next year, get a hold of us late summer, and uh we'll help try to get landowners on the books for people that are passionate about about wildlife and providing that food source for them.
2: So, Jim, you talked about the desire to hunt every one of those projects uh, that you help put into place uh, <laughs> with the organization. Um, what's on your hit list for the for the fall ahead? What's your what's your twenty twenty one hunting season look like?
1: Uh, it it looks like it looks like a lot of time in Iowa um, last year. You know it was all in Iowa. The year before, I had hunted in six separate states for upland wildlife but, um, you know, it's going to be a lot of time in Iowa. I'm going to be traveling from county to county and area to area in order to hunt those things. Mm. Um, and, uh, I'm really kind of looking forward to it. The nice thing, Bob, is the list is so long, you know, <laughs> I, I told my wife, I told my wife, I said, you know, I got to complete this before <laughs> I pass on to the happy hunting ground. And, uh, The way I figure, you know, I may be 106, you know, when I hunt that last one out there. (laughs) That's good. That's good.
0: Well,
2: on behalf of uh, the 300 plus employees who have followed you, um, I don't think we can thank you enough as being not only the first biologist to take a leap of faith, and join an organization a nonprofit but also to your staying power you know you you were a person that stayed here for 31 years and you kept the organization true to the science following science you led with integrity you led with heart and passion and you you're endless devotion to the model and the volunteers of this organization permeates through every one of us today. Um, You're, you know, I'm, I say, you know, I said, you're a legend in the beginning and, and you, you, you're, you look wonderfully healthy and it's hard to say that anybody's a legend until they pass on, but you deserve that recognition. Um, You, you have given so much of your time. Uh, beyond beyond the hours of pay as an employee you volunteered you continue to volunteer and you are just so critical to the success of the organization at such a vulnerable point in this organization's um life and uh, so i, I i'm Poorly putting into words what uh, I know that so many folks feel about you. Um, you've just been such a tremendous asset for so long to this organization. Continue to help us out on podcasts and as a volunteer. But uh, I just want to express how much thanks that this organization feels towards Jim Woolley and and your wife, who uh, uh, endorsed You joining in the organization and your youngsters who uh, I'm sure put up with lots of times when you were on the road. Um, Hopefully you've, you've been able to enjoy the the last couple of years with a little bit more family time, Jim.
1: Well, I appreciate all that. Um, And uh, you know, those are kind words and, and uh, you know, I, I hope I've lived up to them. Um, This is, such a tremendous organization and i'm i'm so proud of all of those folks that have joined and are starting on their 30-year careers um, and are doing tremendous work out there as habitat specialists or farm bill biologists or ag specialists um, things that we never conceived you know when i sat down with jeff finden and decided to come on board mm-hmm. the growth of the organization is tremendous, and. Um, you know, it's it's heartwarming to me to see from where we've come, from where we started, to where we are right now. Um, you know, it's a it's a powerhouse habitat organization that does not just habitat, but so many things out there, um, from hunter recruitment um, all the way up through helping farmers make decisions about where they can. Best put habitat and best put their crops. You know, it's it's kind of amazing to me. And I will I will echo um, you know your thanks to my wife uh, <laughs> and kids. They are they are and have been tremendous. I wouldn't have been able to do it without their support in so many ways. And yeah, you know, I miss I miss the people and I miss um, you know some of the some of the uh excitement you know that always happened in pf but it's great to be retired <laughs> and particularly because i'm a grandfather now yeah. and that is just about the best thing that i've ever done <laughs> in my life it's incredible so i'm looking Good forward for to hauling those kids out on some of those public areas we have here in iowa and introducing them to the sport uh, in the future
2: that's wonderful that's awesome <laughs> um i know and undoubtedly, there's some of uh, our volunteers within the chapters, those 100 plus chapters that you uh, helped create or helped get started that are listening to this podcast and so would love to reach out and drop you an email. If folks wanted to connect with you, what's your email address, Jim?
1: Uh, it's it's pretty easy. It's uh, Jim Woolley, J I M W O O L E Y 69 which is the year that I graduated from high school, at gmail.com. Great. JimWooley69 at gmail.com.
2: Awesome. Well, folks, if, uh, if you were part of one of those chapters that Jim helped create or helped get started uh, with uh, wonderful volunteers back in the day, I know I know, to appreciate to hear from you and reminisce a little bit. And if you if you are one of those chapters and still involved, a huge shout-out of thanks. For, um, for being a volunteer. Absolutely. All right, folks. Um, thank you very much uh, for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast celebrating the very first biologist that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever ever hired back in 1985. We stole them from the Iowa DNR. The man, the myth... The legend, the grandfather, the godfather. In some ways, Jim <laughs> Jim Wooley. um Thanks also to Polaris, the official UTV of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, the number one trusted UTV, UTV by farmers, ranchers, hunters and homeowners for more than a decade. Thanks to Polaris for sponsoring this episode of On the Wing podcast. And for Jared Wickland, I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.